Uh, today, uh, you'll see in your bulletin just chapter 4 of Judges and not, chapter, not chapters 4 and 5, which is the whole uh, Deborah cycle. And um, I'm going to be referring to parts of chapter 5 without reading it in total uh, or without going into a lot of detail in chapter 5. And I'm not preaching it next week. Next week, we're going to move on to Gideon. So I'm kind of doing 4 and 5 uh, together today. Let's pray before we get started. Uh, Father, your word says that um, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And uh, uh, Lord, that there's uh, no amount of preparation, uh, no amount of classes could prepare me uh, for what's going to happen here. Uh, but Lord, your spirit does. Uh, Lord, uh, walking uh, the road of discipleship with you does. And uh, so, Lord, I, I pray. Um, that what comes forth from my mouth, yes, would be pleasing to you, uh, but Lord, would be much more uh, identifies as speech that comes from the Spirit than speech that comes from a communicator. Um, so Lord, I pray that you would be praised uh, by what happens here tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, deliverance uh, from an opponent is rarely instantaneous. Deliverance from our opponent is rarely instantaneous. It's usually a process. Uh, if you've had any illness, but spe specifically if you've had cancer, you know it's a process. Uh, you know that it wasn't beat in a day. It takes treatment and it takes, uh, perhaps it takes a surgery. And if it was a surgery, then it takes recovery. Becoming cancer free doesn't happen in an instant. It's a process. Hurricane Katrina. Happened in September of 2005, blew through New Orleans and ripped it apart. And 50% of the population of New Orleans moved away and didn't come back. Twelve years later, uh, it's up to 80% of its original population. It's taken 12 years and they're not all the way back. The recovery of New Orleans is a process. Martin Luther King, uh, he fought an opponent. His, his opponent wasn't cancer, wasn't a hurricane, it was racism. He fought as a minister for a few years before he went, in time, went into being a full-time social activist. That was in 1955 when he made that transition. And then kind of the landmark of his career was the Civil Rights Act uh, that was signed into legislation in 1964. So nine years, almost ten years, was the process that was undergone there. Ten years. He endured violence. He endured slander. He endured imprisonment. It was a process, 1955 to 64. But in Christianity, we have an opponent too. It's not a hurricane. It's not cancer. We have two enemies. Look at Adam. Think about Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, uh, they, they were, God holds them responsible for what happened, for their sin, by kicking them out of the garden. But he also holds the serpent responsible by giving him a curse. So whose fault is it that sin entered the world? Is it Satan's or is it ours? The answer is that it's both. Satan is our enemy, but we are our own enemies as well. You see this in Judges 2. We saw it in Othniel last week. We saw it in Judges 2. You'd see it in Ehud. You'd see it in Shamgar. It's one verse right before we get to chapter 4. I'm not going there. We'd see it in Shamgar. But on the outside, there's an external. There's an enemy on the outside and the foreign oppressor. But there's also an enemy on the inside. There's an internal enemy, and it's idolatry. It's their own sin. 
And throughout the Old Testament, what you'll see is this two-pronged enemy of human sin on one side and evil on the other that's being orchestrated by Satan, and it's playing out. But alongside this two-pronged, uh, th these two-pronged enemies is, is a promise of a deliverer. A deliverer is going to come. And you see it in Genesis 3. Even as, as, as God is handing out curses to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. There's a promise. There's a promise that one day the serpent's going to be crushed. One day Adam and Eve are going to be back into the Garden of Eden. And it's like a snowball. That promise is like a snowball on the top of a hill. It's about the size of your hand, and it's being rolled down this big hill, and it gathers more and more snow and gets bigger and bigger. And that's what happens in the Old Testament. We get more and more promises, and we see more and more of what this deliverer, this coming deliverer, what he's going to be like, until finally the snowball hits the bottom of the hill, and we see Jesus. We're prepared for it. It stops, kind of rolls along a flat plain, and then Jesus is raised again from the dead, and the snowball goes back downhill as his kingdom is being expanded and expanded to the end of time until it's finally over. That's what we see happen. It's a process. And we'll see it in our text today. There's a process of deliverance. It has multiple stages, multiple characters, but God brings it about. So let's read chapter 4 of Judges together. Verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashath Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. We'll stop there. Remember, do you remember the four cycles? We've done them twice now. At first you have rebellion. You see that in verse 1. Israel did again what was evil on the side of the Lord. Rebellion. And then you've got retribution, that God gives them a foreign enemy. This time, it's Jabin, king of Canaan. So you've got rebellion, retribution, and you've got repentance. Verse 3, you see that Israel cried out. So you see that it's made three, it's, it's three quarters of the way around the cycle, and then, and, and then it stops. And it stops in verses 4 through the end of the chapter. It's about the rescue. All right? So hang in here with me. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, He has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you. Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Habab, the father-in-law of Moses, 
and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of, that's tough, uh, Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harashoth Hagayim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harashoth Hagayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the, king, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone in here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while she was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. The word of the Lord. So you'll see, really, this, is, this falls out into three uh, places pretty easily. Uh, it's three places because there's three major characters. The first one is you see uh, the call for deliverance with Deborah. That's really verses 4 to 14. Uh, you see uh, the partial deliverance, and that's Barak, verses 15 and 16. And then you see the complete deliverance, and you see that in 17 through 24 with Jael. So you get to Deborah. And Deborah, after reading verses 1 to 3 and just how dark things had been, there's been, you've got a, a foreign people who's cruelly um, oppressing them. You've got evil going on in the, in, the, in the hearts of the people with idolatry. And then you've got Deborah in verse 4. It's this ray of light in this dark and dismal age. And she plays an interesting role here, for sure because of her gender, but also in what she does. Notice what she's called. She's called a prophetess. And no other judge throughout this book plays the role of prophet. Look what she does in verse 5. Let's see what it looks like for her to be a prophet. What was her prophetic role? How does it take shape? Look at verse 5. It says, She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Okay, when you see that, uh, the, the, the other picture of Othniel, and if you looked at Ehud, uh, this is not the kind of thing that they do. 
And when you see her sitting under this tree and people are coming up to her, when you think judgment, don't think of it in a legal sense. Think of it as, as discernment in a spiritual sense. So what Deborah is doing is that she's detecting the, the motivations that reside in the hearts of her people. And she's giving instructions on how they're to move forward. That's what it looked like for her to be a prophetess. But we also see her prophetic role being played out in how she talks to Barak. Barak is the commander of the army. It's kind of the general for the, for, for, for the Jewish army. And when she speaks to him, she speaks to him in such a way to rouse action from him. She sees that there's a real problem. Jabin has been cruelly oppressing her people for 20 years. And then she knows the solution. God's revealed to her the solution for this problem. The solution is Barak, Barak and his army. So that's what she does. That's unique. She plays this role of prophetess. She's also unique in what she doesn't do. Uh, Barak plays the role of military leader, not Deborah. All the other, uh, from Othniel all the way to, to, to Samson. All those judges are military leaders, but not Deborah. It's unique as, as she plays out her role as judge. And as we see this, this whole, because what's going to happen is really a big theme of this chapter isn't just that women are in it, but women is the, the role of women is a huge part of this passage. Huge part. We see it with Deborah. We see it at the end with Jael. And we're going to see it in what, how, how, how Sisera, the general of, of the other army, the Canaanite army, how he treated women. We'll see that later. And when we see this whole view of gender, uh, we're confronted with how we view gender, specifically how we view women. For some of us, we have a, 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 an overly, a too limited view of roles that women can play. But look at Deborah. She was called by God to be a prophetess. She just didn't end up there. She received a divine call. And she inspired Barak to claim God's promise. She gave wisdom to the people as they came to her when she was sitting under the tree. Would you be okay if a woman played that kind of role in your life? Would you go to a woman who was sitting under a tree that other people were receiving wisdom from God from and receive it from a, from a woman? Would you receive instruction if you had a supervisor who was a woman? See, it confronts us. For those of us who have too limited a view of the roles women can play, it also, it, it also goes to the other side. Some of us are thinking, man, how archaic. How archaic. Anything a man can do, a woman can do. But this needs to be challenged, too, because look at what she doesn't do here. She doesn't lead people in a military sense. She's got to recruit someone to do it. So we, the critique goes both ways. And we've got to see it as such. And we've got to allow God to give us, well, what's his view of women? What, what, does, what does he say women can do and what does he say women can't do? And not fall in to what our, what our ingrained ways are. Perhaps it's the way you grew up. Perhaps it's the kind of faith environment you've been in that have shaped the way in, you, in the way in which you view women. But regardless of where you need critique, you've got to recognize that Deborah is a phenomenal example of skill and faith. She plays a, a huge, important role in the deliverance of her people. And she does so within the context of a team. And so this deliverance continues to be carried out in this next figure, Barak. And Barak has a significant disadvantage. Uh, what you saw there uh, you see it in two different places uh, within chapter 4 uh, that the opposing army, the Canaanites, led by uh, this general Sisera, they have 900 chariots. But then Barak is supposed to have a, a, a military of, of 10,000 men. He has 10,000 troops. 900 on 10,000. It seems like Barak is the one with the advantage. 
but not so. Chariots are, are, are a huge technological advancement over a foot soldier. 900 chariots would mow through 10,000 men quite easily. So Barak was staring down the barrel at a disadvantage. He was also staring down the, ba- the, the barrel of a disappointment. Chapter 5, if we were to read it, you'd see that he went to the different tribes, the different Israelite tribes, and asked them to participate in God's deliverance over, uh, over the Canaanites. And he went to them, and most of them said no, but not Zebulon, not Naphtali. And so when he moves out, he's, he's at a disadvantage, and he's disappointed. So what does he do? He asked Deborah to join him. See, Deborah, Deborah joined him because she represented the presence of the Lord. And Barak knew that he was sunk if the Lord wasn't going to be with him. He knew that the Lord was his only hope in these circumstances. So he stepped out. He stepped out in faith. And he believed the Lord went before him. And the Lord blessed his face. And the text says that he routed his enemies. But how did he do it? How did this happen? How, how, how did this disadvantage get taken care of? Well, you don't, we didn't read it here in chapter 4. We do see it in chapter 5. In chapter 5, what you'll see is... Um, you'll see that it was something in nature happened. In chapter 4, the details we get is that Barak and his army, the 10,000 men, they're on Mount Tabor. And we see in chapter 4 that Sister and his army, that the chariots are along the river so that the animals can drink. And so they're going to come down to, 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 to get the chariots. But, when, but before they come down, God sends a huge rain. And when God sends a huge rain, it floods out that plain. And you know what happened to the chariots? They got stuck. So what was their, their biggest asset, their technological advancement, now becomes, it's obsolete. It doesn't matter. They're, now they're just 900 foot soldiers. But think about it. Who sent the rain? Who's God? The rain wasn't part of Deborah and Barak's strategic plan. They didn't think that way. We also don't see that Barak or Deborah prayed for rain to happen. It's not like they foresaw, okay, now they're down there on the river. If, it, if, if it'll just flood, then they'll get stuck and we'll, we'll beat them easily. So let's pray and ask God to send rain. They don't even do that. They just trusted God. They just trusted that he was going to be the one to bring deliverance, and boy, did he ever. So when's your back been up against the wall? When has deliverance seemed impossible for you? Did you expect God to come through for you in a way that you would never anticipate? If you're like me, probably not. I think it's for two reasons we don't do this. I think on one side, we all, some of us are strategic planners. We think if we can strategically plan a defeat over our enemies, then we'll be successful. Others of us, we're lackadaisical. And we don't expect God to move in our circumstances because we don't think we have that real of an enemy. So the first kind of person that plans, they put their faith in themselves. The second person doesn't realize that the evil right underneath their nose. So which are you? Brothers and sisters, we can't defeat sin on our own, and we certainly can't defeat Satan on our own. Yet God has still promised us victory. 
Victory was sure for God's people when they took out the chariots, but it wasn't complete. It was incomplete. And that's where Jael finishes up the job. This little rascal, Sisera, this, this general, he runs away. When he, he somehow gets off his horse and, and, he, and he runs away and he finds a tent. It's a, it's a non-Jewish safe haven for him. At least he thought it was a non-Jewish safe haven because he found the tent of a Kenite. Kenites weren't Jewish. They, instead, they had made a pact with King Jabin. They were friendly with the Canaanites. So I'm sure when Sisera showed up, he assumed uh, that he would be protected by this Kenite. If a Jew tracked him down, that the Kenite would say, hey, he's not here. But safety and protection is not what he found. Sisera enters the tent of a married woman named Jael. And she covers him with a rug. She gives him a glass of milk. And then he asks her, hey, if anybody comes, just tell them I'm not here. And when he falls asleep after this long day of battle, and he's nice and comfortable, Jael takes out a tent peg and a hammer and puts it through his temple. Gruesome. No way around that. This is like every adolescent boy's favorite story in the Bible. But we need some context to realize, why is this so gruesome? Well, we see it in chapter 5. The last part of chapter 5, verses 28 through 30, we get a bigger, a fuller picture of what this man's sister was really like. And what we find out is that what Sisera liked to do is he liked to steal women, enslave them for his sexual escapades. So his brutal woman by a woman is this inbreaking of the internal judgment that faced him. And to be killed by a woman was his just desert for living a life of abuse towards them. So this death of Sisera, now the battle's over. Israel's opponent has been subdued. It's been a 20-year process to remove this formidable and vile opponent. It's taken three different leaders playing three different roles, but now it's done. And who gets the glory? Is it going to be Deborah? Is it going to be Deborah for her faith? Is it going to be Barak for his humble courage? Or is it going to be Jael for her fearlessness? You know the answer is none, right? Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Deborah says, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? So you had the picture, don't you? He's on, he's on top of Mount Tabor. And the way that Barak is supposed to see this situation is that he's, he's not the spear of, of the sword. He's not the beginning of, of, of the collision that's about to happen down here. But the Lord went before him. So, at, so ultimately, the Lord is the one who's the hero in this story. He's the warrior who wipes them all out. He's the one who sent the rain. He's the one who made them get stuck. He's the one who gave them promises. So as you read this story, we should marvel at God's plan, His provision, and His mercy. I know it doesn't seem very merciful to have a guy like Sisera killed with a tent peg through his temple. But look at the mercy that God's extended to His people. Remember verse 1? He said that they had done evil in his sight. And here's God acting as a warrior on their behalf. So God's the warrior. He's the one who subdues the opponents of his people. 
Isn't that what you need in your life? Don't you need God to subdue the enemy within and the enemy without? Because you know you're your own worst enemy. I went to seminary, a small place in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I graduated, I only graduated with 33 people. And uh, we had a convocation service at the end. A convocation service is kind of graduation and a worship service kind of rolled up into one. And uh, I'd been to the convocations for the people who graduated before me, so I kind of knew what was going to happen. And what happened was is that they lined up the 33 graduates across the front of the chapel. We, li- we, we lined up sitting down on chairs. That's where we sat the whole worship service. But towards the end of the worship service, the 15 full-time faculty went across laying their hands on, on your shoulders, and they prayed for you. They just, you know, you, you, can see the, you, you can see them just standing up going line by line all the way down. All the way down. It took a little while. And probably the, the, the professor that I was closest with, uh, Dr. Smith, we had spent tons of time together. And Dr. Smith, he prayed the shortest prayer, shorter than all the other 14 full-time professors over me. I'll, I'll never forget it. And he prayed this. He said, Lord, save Marshall from the pride of apparent success and the despondency of apparent failure. He recognized something. He recognized that my biggest enemy wasn't going to be the greater culture. He recognized that my greatest enemy was me. Some of you haven't been around church very long, that's okay. But if you have, if you know anything about pastors, here's what you know. There's two things that are real that are that are more prevalent in pastors than with the the rest of the population. One is depression. Pastors are more depressed than the rest of society. Why is that? It's because the despondency that comes with a lack of apparent success. Pastors, I can't prove this one. I can't prove the depression one. I can't prove this one. But pastors are some, uh, are some of the most arrogant people you've ever been around. You know why? Because they begin to believe their own press. When apparent success occurs in their ministry, they tend to give themselves the credit and not God. And so one of my consistent prayers, one that I I, I pray the Lord saves me from, is this. I pray the same prayer that Dr. Smith prayed for me. I pray that he subdues my greatest opponent. Do you pray that way for yourself? But there's another enemy at work, isn't there? There's the one on the outside. So we saw the one on on our inside, but then there's another one. And he's very real. You probably heard this week, uh, Hugh Hefner died. If you don't know anything about Hugh Hefner, you're better for it. But if you do know anything about him, you know that he founded Playboy back in the 50s. I read a blog this week, and the blogger wrote this. He said that Hugh Hefner pulled pornography out of the seedy back cultural alleys and he dressed it in sophisticated costume and speech. What Hugh Hebner claimed is that he was leading this sexual revolution, that he was freeing our culture from its Puritan roots. But was he? Instead of providing sexual freedom, I think what happened is he helped promote sexual enslavement. He helped encourage men to objectify women and to treat them as bodies for their lustful fantasies. 
And then he deceived women to believe that their value was in proportion to the appeal that their bodies could provide to men. So it's sick. It should anger you. And you should see that Satan is powerfully at work in the adult entertainment industry. Satan's smart. Satan's experienced. Satan's never idle. And Satan has a huge army at his disposal. And he leverages all that and attacks your sinful nature. Satan seeks to exploit your sinful tendencies because his ultimate goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy us. See, you're really good, and I'm really good at ruining my own life. We don't need Satan's help, but what Satan can do is he helps us run our lives faster and with more destruction than we would by ourselves. And so what we need is for God to subdue him. That's so why we pray this prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, the internal. You hear it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the external. So let me give you two practical applications for this. And you might, I might give them and you might say, that, those aren't practical enough. I'm sorry. There's not five magical steps to defeat evil in your life. But here's one. One of them is believe the gospel. We're talking about the human heart here. So all of our effort has got to be focused at our hearts. Think about the deliverance uh, of, of Israel. Think about where it started as we read the narrative. Where did it start? It started when Deborah believed God. And then it went to Barak, believed God. And then it went to 10,000 soldiers, believed God. And then the whole nation experienced rest. And so what we all need to fight, what we all need to fight evil, is to believe the grace of the gospel is powerful enough to defeat our internal opponent. See, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, he calls the gospel the power, the, um, the dynamos, the dynamite of salvation. So it's powerful. It's got extraordinary power, not just to convert you, but to change you. Titus 2 says that the grace of God trains us to renounce all ungodliness. Notice it's not the law. It's not rules that train us to renounce ungodliness. It's grace. In other words, God subdues our old natures by grace. 1 John 4, 4 says this, He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So of course Jesus is greater than the world because he's the one who rose again from the grave. And if Jesus can rise from the grave, he can empower you to defeat evil in your own life. That's the first thing, believe the gospel. Second thing, uh, get in community. Uh, we live in perhaps the most isolated culture in human history. Uh, the number of meaningful relationships among people uh, are, is at an all-time crisis. Um, in 1950, a study's been done that uh, since 1950, uh, the number of meaningful relationships uh, in Americans has been steadily declining. You know, you know it's been increasing since 1950. The average floor space in a person's home and what that tells me is that we've traded friends for floor space and connections for stuff. We also think that we live in the most connected society ever. But when tragedy strikes, you know who's not going to come sit with you? Your Instagram followers. 
When tragedy strikes you, he's not going to sit with you. Your Facebook friends. So social media really is just a parody of connection. See, the way God's made us is that when we are connected in meaningful ways to other human beings, we're healthy. Think about Israel. Think about how God delivered Israel in chapter 4. He delivered them through Deborah, Barak, and Jael. He did it through a community. So perhaps what you need to do tonight is to bring the evil in your own heart out into the relationships with the people you have in this room. You might say, Marsh, if, if I did that, people would think less of me for sure. And you might end up kicking me out of the church. Well, it's not true. You know who's telling you that? Satan. If Satan keeps you isolated, then he will win. But if you bring your guilt and you bring your shame out into the open, it'll lose its grip. Last question. When you think of heaven, what do you think of? You think of just seeing old, uh, old loved ones, people who died before you? It's okay if you do. Uh, do you just think of it being free of disease? I hope you do. When I think of heaven, I think of the cats winning the SEC. That's what I think of. <laughs> but do you ever think about this? There's not going to be any heroin overdoses in heaven. There aren't going to be any more broken homes due to alcoholism. Pornography is not going to exist in heaven. Gambling addiction is not going, to, not going to exist in heaven. Food addiction is not going to exist in heaven. Our social problems from racism to poverty aren't going to exist in heaven. Because finally, Jesus will have overcome fully and completely our internal enemies and our external enemies. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we just didn't learn, maybe learn a story we've never heard before. So we could do better uh, on Bible tests. Uh, but Lord, I, I pray that we would see ourselves in this story. Uh, Lord, as we see you being our warrior who ultimately defeats sin and evil in the world. Oh Lord, we long, <laughs> we long. For that to be full and complete. So come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Christ's name, amen.